Good morning. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at topics uh, that Christians need to be equipped in to be able to interact with people outside the faith. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the relationship of science and religion, specifically uh, evolution, creation, and the Christian faith. A couple of books I'd recommend, which I used for research. Uh, first one is Mark Mittelberg, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And the second one is Tim Keller's The Reason for God. This is uh, an advancement of or modern day version of C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity. Also been on parkstreet.org, which is a church in Boston where a professor I had at seminary, Dr. Gordon Hugenberger, has written on this topic as well. Uh, it's well worth looking more into. Now, Jesus specifically said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets the Father apart from him. And so to generally love others, we cannot keep this life-changing, life-saving reality to ourselves. And yet at the same time, as Christians, we can make the mistake of attempting to lead people towards two conversions. First one, to a scientific viewpoint which we hold ourselves, which we like to think is the one true Christian position of creation. And then the second one after that, to accepting Jesus. This is unhelpful and unbiblical. So our role as Christ followers and disciple makers is to remove as many barriers as possible for people to clearly hear the gospel message and to decide for themselves whether they choose to accept or reject the good news of Jesus. There's only one conversion that matters, and so this is the only one we should present. So my hope after today's message is that you leave understanding that Christians can hold a wide variety of biblically faithful positions as it relates to the relationship of science and Christianity, and specifically evolution and creation. Love in today's fast-moving culture, where everyone is waiting to give their opinion, is often best illustrated by spending time in person with someone, and seeking to listen and understand them. So friends, as we engage the world around us and have confidence in our faith, I'd like you to adopt that mindset now as I teach. I'm not asking you to throw away what beliefs you've held to, but please be open to the reality that there's not one true Christian way to view the relationship between science and Christianity, and that we'd be both wise and loving to at very least understand the landscape of options so we don't fall into the trap of presenting two conversions necessary for salvation. I'm going to look today at the topics will be evolution, what it is and what it isn't. Secondly, I'll be looking at what creation is and isn't from Genesis 1 and 2. And thirdly, I'll be looking at what the Christian faith is and isn't. Before I do that, let's pray. Will you bow your heads? Father God, thank you that you have given us uh, the Bible, Lord. Thank you that your word uh, is without fault. It's without error, Lord. Help us to be faithful to your word, to be true to your word. And at the same time, Lord, uh, be aware that we need to live in the world, but not be of the world. At the same time, uh, be willing to give an answer to the faith we have in you. But also enable us to love others well, to engage in conversation, to engage in dialogue with the highest aim possible to be introducing people to you, Lord Jesus. Be with us now. Amen. Well, the need to accurately understand and present scientific arguments is not something new. In the 5th century, Augustine said this, 
It is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for the unbeliever to hear a Christian talking nonsense on scientific issues when purporting to give the meaning of Holy Scripture. In other words, if we have faulty or unreliable views on certain matters, why should people trust us to have accurate and reliable views about the Bible? There are four positions to describe the relationship between science and Christianity. You can see these on the slides behind me. First one is conflict. Second position is dialogue. The third, integration. And the fourth, independence. The noisiest of these uh, positions, the relationship between, between science and Christianity, is conflict. And the battle lines were drawn in the 19th century, where advances in geology and biology seemed incompatible with the most, commonly, most common biblically held view of a young earth. Creationists' view of Genesis 1 did not allow for any evolutionary process. The temperature of this argument has been ratcheted up in recent times with the philosophical naturalism of Richard Dawkins, who argues in books such as The God Delusion that evolution has made religious belief invalid, and that, in essence, only idiots believe in God. I'm going to look at this conflict position in more detail as I look at what evolution is and isn't, and then as I look at the biblical account of creation. All I will say for now is that the noisiest people in the room are not always the most informed. The second position is dialogue, which means that science and Christianity are not in stark opposition to one another, but can at least benefit from understanding one another better. The third position is integration. People that hold this position say that there is no necessary incompatibility between upholding scientific ideas and a devout faith. A theologian, uh, John Stott, holds this position. In essence, he says, the creation account in Genesis is the who, and that if anything, the science is the how. Finally, the fourth position is independence. This holds that faith is a private, personal, subjective thing and does so doesn't speak to the natural world. In other words, faith and science have nothing to say to each other. Now, this may work with other religions or New Age deviations of Orthodox Christianity. In other words, uh, false teaching. However, it's not a genuine option if you believe in the historical person of Jesus and his teaching that he is the only way. What Jesus had to say means everything in our material world and is completely un incompatible with just subjective, fanciful thinking. So this first section, let's look at what evolution is and then isn't. So evolutionary science assumes that more complex life forms evolved from less complex life forms through a process of natural selection and survival of the fittest was initiated by Charles Darwin in his book, The Origin of the Species, based on his observations of the Galapagos Islands. Now, on a micro, smaller level, where you're looking at uh, finch beaks development and also some black moth coloration progression, uh, this is where the actual data was got from. Uh, evolutionary science seems to be an intellectually solid theory. 
However, this is very important for our argument today. It is not an intellectually watertight worldview as to the origin of life itself. And, as Dawkins would argue, it is not intellectually watertight argument that atheists are more intelligent and more evolved humans than people that believe in God. So three significant holes in evolutionary science as a worldview that we need to be aware of as we enter into dialogue uh, with others. Firstly, matter. So it requires the formation of a universe from matter in which all organic life would reside amongst all the necessary ingredients for it. The first law of thermodynamics is not often uh, sometimes mistaken as matter cannot be created or destroyed. It's in fact that energy within a closed system cannot be created or destroyed. And yet evolutionary science as a worldview holds that this matter has always been there and that the ingredients necessary, necessary for life just so happened uh, to be present as well. Now, Stephen Hawkins argues that uh, this matter was created by the Big Bang, which is a cataclysmic explosion from an infestinimally small point into what will become the vast expanse of the solar system, galaxies, constellations, and the universe. But friends, even if this were the case, uh, the origin of the Big Bang cannot currently be explained by our present understanding of physics. So at the very least, even now, the Big Bang actually qualifies as a supernatural event. Far from being proof that atheism is correct, as Dawkins argues. Second hole in evolutionary science as a watertight worldview is the actual origin of life itself. So let's just say you were to hold the position that all the necessary ingredients for life were present and accounted for, that matter was just there. Evolutionary science still does not actually explain the origin or spark of life other than to notice existence. Consider also the fact that even the simplest early life forms have tremendous complexity and the odds of these coming together by chance is tiny. The questions Christians hope no one will ask by Mark Mittelberg uh, says this on page 39. It's a quote from the Cambridge-trained philosopher of science, Stephen Mayer. He says this, Consider what you'd need for a protein molecule to form by chance. First, you need the right bonds between the amino acids. Second, amino acids come in right-handed and left-handed versions, and you've got to get only left-handed ones. Third, the amino acids must link up in a specified sequence, like letters in a sentence. Run the odds of these falling into place on their own, and you find that the probabilities of forming a rather short functional protein at random would be one chance in a hundred thousand trillion 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 trillion. That's a ten with 125 zeros after it. And that would only be one protein molecule. A minimally complex cell would need between 300 and 500 protein molecules. And Stephen Mayer continues to say, to suggest chance against these odds is really to invoke a naturalistic miracle. Finally, the third significant hole which shows that evolutionary science is not a watertight worldview or proof that God does not exist 
is nature has had to take a huge informational jump for life to originate. Consider two patterns on a beach. One is formed by waves, pretty random, but you know what has created it. The other is the pattern, uh, the words, Andy loves Shelley. Even with such informational simplicity, reason must acknowledge that some form of intelligence was behind them. So how much more the human informational message of DNA, which is three billion letters long, written in four-letter code? Looking at those three holes, we can see that evolutionary science is not a watertight worldview that does away with the need of a creator or intelligent design or God. Yes, it is uh, an intellectually solid theory on a micro level, but it does not give reason for people not to believe in God. So Dawkins is dead wrong to suggest that belief in God is based solely on intelligence or rather lack of intelligence. There are so, so many reasons why people may choose to believe or not believe in God. So please, friends, as we engage in dialogue with people from an evolutionary uh, perspective, do not feel the need to be shouted down as if uh, you are somehow uh, redundant intellectually. Let's now look at creation, what Genesis 1 and 2 is and what Genesis 1 and 2 is not. This is really going to help us understand our biblical position, what we can have confidence in, and also be aware of some forms of pushback that people may have as we engage in dialogue. So Genesis 1 and 2 is a revelation of who the creator is. Let us make man in our likeness, but was not written as an exhaustive how of creation. Consider, for example, the weather. Psalm 135.7 says, God sends the rain. The psalmist's point is who sends the rain, not how God sends the rain. So it does not then describe how God uses a process of evaporation, condensation, and then rain. And this in no way takes away from who God is by not doing that. In the same way, consider reproduction. Psalm 139.13 says that God knit each of us together in our mother's womb. The author's point is who carefully made you, not how you were carefully made does not describe gestation, embryology, and so on. And again, this in no way takes anything away from God, or who God is by not doing so. Understanding the author's intention of Genesis 1 and 2, as with any other biblical text, is critical in understanding its meaning. The theologian C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, puts it this way. He says, there are two acceptable answers to the question, why is the kettle boiling? One is, according to the laws of thermodynamics, PV equals NRT and so on. The other acceptable answer is, because Mrs. Lewis wants a cup of tea. So as we look at the question, how did I come to be? Genesis 1 and 2 answers, God made you. 
See, God was much more concerned with the Israelites knowing who he is than an exhaustive explanation of the creative process, which frankly could have been unhelpful to a semi-nomadic people group 4,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Imagine if God had mentioned dinosaurs or the fossil record, it would seem extremely difficult to comprehend. And the very purpose of introducing himself to the Israelite people and giving an explanation of who made the earth, it, this would have been unhelpful for. And friends, the reality is, even back in England, I had many conversations with people who would not give... Uh, Christianity a second thought because they'd say, well, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? So being able to answer these is critical. Now, there are different biblically faithful positions that Christians can take on creation. And one is not the more true Christian position than another. Now, whenever we're looking at what the Bible says and forming our own viewpoint on it, our own interpretation, the key is that we are using the Bible as our source of authority. Now, they can be, the three different positions can be grouped by their interpretation of the Hebrew, Hebrew word yom in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, each of these interpretations of the Hebrew word yom is in and of itself a valid interpretation. The first group translate Yom as a literal 24-hour day. So they would say that creation occurred over six 24-hour periods. Advances in biology and geology explained with the notion that God created the world with the appearance of age. So if someone were to say, how old was Adam when God created him? They would answer, well, he's an adult male. So by the same logic, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that God created the world with an appearance of age. In addition to this 24-hour view, there have been some scholarship in the 17th century where John Lightfoot provided a timeline back from Jesus to creation. And this was understanding genealogies as exhaustive and understanding the Hebrew word beget to solely mean the parent of. And based on this scholarship, uh, John Lightfoot placed creation as 9 a.m. on September the 12th, 3929 B.C. This is certainly the simplest reading of Genesis 1 and 2. It'd be really helpful teaching in Sunday schools, but please be aware that it's not watertight in and of itself when entering dialogue with non-believers. For example, Someone could argue, how can Yom mean a solar day when the sun and the moon were not created until day four? Equally, Hebrews 4 verses 4 to 11 tells us that since creation, God has been resting in the seventh day. Theologians would argue that the seventh day represents heaven, which believers in Christ will enter into one day. Now, within this first group of people that translate Yom as a literal 24-hour day, there are some uh, that hold to this view, but they would say that God revealed his creation account to Moses over the course of six days. And so Moses recorded it this way in Genesis 1 and 2. The second group of uh, Christians who hold a biblically faithful view of Genesis 1 and 2 translate Yom as a period of time. 
They argue that day, in fact, reflects a heavenly reality, which is a different length of time to a 24-hour solar day. And so advances in biology and geology, the turn of the 19th century, explained by agreeing that the Earth is old, but that God intervenes supernaturally at various points along the way to create life. So they also argue that evolution works on a micro level, but not on a macro level. There needs to be some supernatural uh, creation of life, creation of a great informational jump and a creation of matter. This position has been much more popular in the 20th century. also holds that genealogies in the Bible are selective and that the word beget uh, can mean an ancestor of as well as a parent of. So when you hold yom to mean a period of time, you do not require a young universe or a young earth. Funny, the third group of Bible-believing faithful Christians translate yom as an allegorical interpretation of a day. This is the position theistic evolutionists hold. They are those who are devout in their faith, who believe God actively worked behind the scenes through an evolutionary process to bring about life as we know it. However, uh, as we do know, evolution is not the be-all and end-all revelation of truth that we have at the moment. Equally, another uh, pushback on this allegorical interpretation of a day is that there are many other parts within Genesis 1 and 2 that are not allegorical, such as the historical person of Adam, who Jesus affirms. Some other evangelicals hold this allegorical interpretation of Yom through reading Genesis 1 through a framework hypothesis, where Genesis 1 is read as a topical and logical framework rather than a chronological one. Please Google framework hypothesis and look at this a bit more in detail. So it says that there are three elements to the days. Days 1 to 3 are the creation kingdoms. Days four to six are the creation kings who rule over the creation kingdoms. And day seven is the creation kingdom of heaven and who the creator king is. So look at it this way. Day one is light, the creation kingdom of light. Day four, correspondingly, is the creation kings of sun and moon. Day two is the creation kingdoms of sky and water. And day five is the creation kings of bird and fish. Day three, the creation kingdoms of land and vegetation. And day six, the creation kings of land animals and man. And finally, day seven, all in one, is the creation kingdom of heaven and the creation king of Yahweh God. Friends, my hope uh, through this teaching is that you take away that we can be solid Bible-believing Christians and hold any of these positions. Just be aware that each of them is not beyond discussion in it being problem-free or the one true Christian position. God was introducing himself in Genesis 1 and 2. He was not providing an exhaustive how of the creative act or creative process. So friends, please be mindful that we do not need to convert someone to our view before introducing them to the historical person of Jesus. And my aim as a teacher and pastor is to give you the information and so you can 
interpret it yourselves and come to your own conclusions. But uh, if people were to ask me, I would say that I am a bit of a mixture of the following within Genesis 1 and 2. I'm certainly more persuaded by the logic of the framework hypothesis because it brings uh, the creation story to this glorious who. This is the creator king who made man and whom we were made to worship. However, I equally hold to yom, meaning a period of time. I think that it is a heavenly reality. It's not just an allegory. So if I had to teach kids, I'd say, God made the world in six days. And if some asked for any further explanation, I'd say, well, some Christians think it's a 24-hour day. Others think that it means a day in heaven. And there are some other people that see this language as a bit more poetical. Friends, what isn't in doubt, though, is who? God, the uncreated creator, the king of kings, created man and wanted to do so and create man in his image. Now, the whole science versus religion debate is a way of being informed in answering a seeker's or skeptic's questions about the relationship between science and Christianity. However, it should in no way be a roadblock to presenting the gospel, which is the heart of the Christian faith. So we've looked at what evolution is and isn't. We've looked at what creation is and isn't, according to Genesis 1 and 2. Now let's look at what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is a response to the historic person of Jesus. His claims to have been the son of God in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Orthodox Christianity, as in legitimate Christianity, is best summarized by the Apostles' Creed, which the early church affirmed. Now listen as I, I read this. Uh, to It just believes in God as the maker of heaven and earth. It just believes in the who, not in the how of creation. And as I continue reading, it mentions the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic here is with a small c, and it means the universal, the worldwide church. So this is what we affirm as Christians. This is, uh, if we're introducing someone to Christianity, uh, this is what they would come to believe in the fullness of time as a Christ follower. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, equally as evangelicals, we uphold that the Christian faith is a necessary response to the gospel, which is that our forgiveness of sins were paid by Jesus' death on the cross. And it's through accepting Jesus as our Lord, the person who we now want to live for, or not ourselves, and also accepting Jesus as our Saviour. In other words, we accept his once-for-all payment for sins. It's through this, accepting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, 
with which we enter into a personal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. From a personal perspective, when I was led to faith as a lukewarm skeptic and seeker, what mattered most to me was, are the gospel accounts of Jesus historically trustworthy and accurate? Because if they were, I knew that I'd be much more interested in what they had to say about Jesus. Secondly, I was also interested in, well, what did Jesus have to say about himself? Lots of different people have their own views about it, but what, who did he say he was? And through exploring the Christian faith, I discovered that Jesus claimed to be God, that he was willing to die for this, and that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. All of this is just intellectual. On a heart level, I was deeply impacted by the gospel because I discovered that Jesus could forgive my sins and change the trajectory of my life, which I so desperately wanted. Friends, as we are equipping ourselves to be engaged in dialogue about our faith with others from different perspectives, if we want to become compelling in sharing our Christian faith, we'd be wise to be willing to seek to understand other people's positions and be ready to give an account for our own. If you really wanted to go to school on a certain topic, far be it from being key, uh, keyboard warriors shouting down atheists on social media, it's much, much, much more wise and helpful to go to school on the historical trustworthiness of the Gospels, who Jesus said he was, and then go to school on the evidence for his resurrection. This is at the heart of what a Christian is. This is what we're leading people towards as they accept the gospel. These are much, much more compelling in presenting the gospel and inviting a person to seek Jesus. However, I would also say it's unhelpful being the loudest person in the room, whether you're doubling down on a certain scientific view or a certain interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. And you're, you're being the loudest person in the room claiming that these things to understand your viewpoint is necessary for salvation. Or that you're somehow doing a disservice to God. This is not the case. We have the truth. We have nothing to fear from dialogue. Sometimes knowing who God is is, is likened to having the sword of truth. But when we have the sword of truth, let us not go out aggressively with it. But instead, it's sometimes best used like a, uh, a scalpel in a skillful heart surgeon's hands. We're helping just peel away at certain layers to see where the true need is and how Jesus can meet that need. Now, I have seen it happen before. It's possible to win an argument and then lose the soul. And particularly be aware of this if you hold to the conflict position, the relationship between science and Christianity. Friends, God is absolute truth. And we may not know uh, absolute truth absolutely, but as Christ followers, we have absolutely nothing to fear in engaging in dialogue. At the same time, as we're looking at creation and as we're looking at evolution, let's not forget that Jesus, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he actually says that no truth is a person. Jesus is saying, I am truth. 
And so as we're looking at truth, we always need to be introducing that person to Jesus. Friends, separate to what I presented, what creation is and isn't, what evolution is and isn't, and what the Christian faith is, I still believe that we can have tremendous confidence if we look at creation, even from a scientific how perspective, that there was a designer behind it. Even more so, the the Christian position of God being three in one. Consider the following examples. Think of all of the unity in diversity that there is in our world. Is that not God's character himself? The three in one God is unified in his diversity. And look at the evidence for uh, God the Father within creation, within our universe. Firstly, the universe has a finite nature. It has not always existed. Even the scientific position will hold that. It has a beginning and something has to start somewhere. Something has to create that beginning. Secondly, evidence for God the Father is the contingency of the universe. Although we may understand laws of nature and laws of physics, the universe itself is somewhat unpredictable. We still haven't figured out the exact purpose of an emu or the reason uh, for so many other things. And even if you look at the planets in our solar system, the size of them, the distance from the sun, is not necessarily logical. It would view if something were a similar distance from the sun as another, they may be all uh, the same size. Certainly with a big bang, you would not expect large planets close to the sun or, or small ones further away. Finally, the evidence of God the Father is just the beauty of the universe. So the Trinity would uphold that God is the most beautiful being, is love himself, God the Father and his perfect reflection as himself of God the Son, and then that representation of their love relationship, God himself as Holy Spirit, just the most beautiful thing possible. Now, Thomas Applequist, professor of physics at Yale, said that many scientists believe the beauty of a scientific theory is predictive of its truth. Beauty in science involves simplicity and elegance. A theory's capacity to explain the widest range of phenomena with the fewest postulates. Friends, if we peel back creation and understand it more, it reveals tremendous beauty. Very fingerprints of God the Father himself. Secondly, let's look at a couple of hints of God the Holy Spirit. Firstly, creation is teeming with life. The Holy Spirit creates life. He's there hovering over the darkness, hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. You don't even want to know how many bedbugs are in your bed tonight. There is beyond our comprehension, there's that many different life forms on even just on earth itself. And as architects, uh, hundreds of years ago, would build cathedrals and churches. What they would try and do is recreate this kind of castle-like, palace-like character. And as they would look up at the heavens, they would see it as almost like this heavenly temple. 
And we know that the, the Holy Spirit resides in a temple, that a body is uh, described as a temple of God, and the Holy Spirit resides within us. But even as you look up from our earthly perspective into the stars above, there is this temple palace-like character of the universe in line with who God is as the Holy Spirit. And finally, consider all of the evidence for God the Son being hinted at in creation. Now, the universe is rational. We can understand it. When God came uh, as Jesus, his son, he wanted us to fully see who he was. And the universe, we can understand it. As humans, we can rule over it. It has been, creation says, the Genesis 1, we've been designed to rule over it, and we are able to rule over it. It's not just this chaotic uh, thing. When I say rule over by man, I want to be cautious and say it means good, careful stewardship, just as we are representing God in ruling. Second element that points to God the Son is the anthropic principle. Uh, please look this one up and do some more study on it. It's A-N-T-H-R-O-P-I-C, the anthropic principle. The more you look at them, this, the more your mind will just be blown. Uh, you'll find out that the universe is remarkably fine-tuned fine to enable the existence of man. And if you alter any distance or force in the universe, mankind cannot live. It really seems that the universe has been designed specifically for mankind and the creation of mankind. And finally, the, the ninth reason why I think that as Christians we can have great confidence in there being uh, a three-in-one God, a designer behind the universe, is that the universe is cruciform. What that means is that the universe is full of sacrifice for the benefit of humanity. And this points to God the Father who would give us his only son. Let's just say, and it's hypothetical, let's just say that our current understanding of science and history and biology and geology and physics was correct. That still does not only not do away with God, it points to a God who is willing to sacrifice so much for mankind. So think of it, 400 trillion galaxies. And in each of these 400 trillion galaxies, there are 200 trillion stars in each. And the Bible said this has all been created for us. And even if it was such an old universe, think what that means. God's investment and care and his planning for the sake of his people. So if life of the universe, according to the current model, were likened to one calendar year, it would look like this. And as I, as I share this, consider the sacrifices that God is willing to make for humanity. January the 1st would be the Big Bang. It wouldn't be until September the 3rd that it was formation of the earth. You have to wait until December the 18th where the Cambrian explosion happened, where carboniferous forests were made. Friends, I don't know if you're aware, but every time you, you buy a gallon of gas, whole forests had to grow up and decompose. As you've driven to church today, you have used up whole forests They've grown up and decomposed. That seems a tremendous waste 
from a purely uh, uh, material standpoint. It'd be until the December the 24th that Mount Everest forms. It wouldn't be until December the 31st, 11.56pm, with 15 seconds, that man first came into existence, Adam and Eve. Again, it, it seems like a tremendous waste. It's this investment of 14 billion years of time and resources just to ensure human life as we know it today. To the Christian faith, this can be explained. This is the handiwork of a God. A God who did all this was equally prepared to give his only son to give us all eternal life. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Friends, as we seek to love God well, as we seek to love others well, as we seek to make disciples obey Jesus' command, we are sharing with people that God is love. We're sharing with people that Jesus was God, that he was a historical person who was born, who lived, who died and ascended to heaven. We can ask people to look at the historical trustworthiness of the Gospels. We can ask people to look at the logic of who Jesus says he was and does that make sense. We can even look at evidence for the resurrection. And friends, in doing so, be aware that if we don't have love when we're sharing, if we don't listen well, it'll be very difficult to engage with people on a deeper, more meaningful level. Some people, we need to understand things intellectually before it then gets down to our heart, before you make a decision to follow Christ. But for some others of us, uh, Christ speaks to our heart. So in loving others, in caring for others, in being willing to enter in dialogue with others without having to shout them down, we can present to people that Christ loves them, that he died for them, and that he was raised for the dead for them. And even right now, that he is at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, speaking words of love on their behalf, and that he will come again to renew them and all of creation because he loves them. Let's not forget that we can also speak to people's hearts and how Christ meets their needs. And sometimes it's heart first before head. Let's pray. Father God, you are the way, the truth, and the life. May we be informed so we do not do a disservice to the gospel. May we be informed so we do not put people off the gospel. May we be informed that we're not trying to lead people to two conversions, which is false. But instead, Lord, help us to be informed. Help us to care, to discuss, to understand, to not be afraid of anything, Lord. We don't want to be ostriches when we believe in you. Lord, of all, of all the belief systems, Christianity is the one based on evidence, not just on subjective thinking. So, Father, help us to love others well. Help us to present you well. And help us have nothing to fear from what the world might say around us, Lord. We know that truth is you. Truth is a person. In Jesus' name, amen.